0: Uh, I'm glad to be in the, in the study of Ephesians together. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up with us. Um, we, are, we find ourselves in Ephesians chapter six. Now, if you're newer to the Bible, Ephesians is in this second, this second smaller little bit of the Bible. Um, and the book of Ephesians is a, is a letter that was written. And what it has is chapters and verses. The chapters are the big, bold numbers, and the verses are the teeny, tiny ones. Uh, and so we are in chapter or big, bold number six, Uh, And today we are working through verses one to four. So if you wanna open up there or or on your phone, uh, you can find the book of Ephesians and you can Google Ephesians six. And then we're in the verses or small numbers, one to four, uh, as we're continuing that study. Now, if you are here and you're visiting us, we've been walking through this letter kind of bit by bit uh, and find ourselves today in chapter six, which is the last chapter uh, of the book of Ephesians. So you're catching us on the back end. Uh, in fact, next week will be the last sermon that we have on uh, the book of Ephesians uh, before we move into uh, Christmas Eve and then Christmas Day. And, and this letter is written by a man named Paul. Now, Paul was once a man who was a persecutor of the Christian church. He was actively trying to throw Christians into jail, but then he had become miraculously uh, converted, became a Christian, and gave his life to Jesus. And then he spent the rest of his life as a pastor and a missionary and a church planter. In most of his life, things did not go well for him. Uh, you can read the book of Acts, and just things go poorly for this man in an earthly perspective, uh, but in a, in a heavenly perspective, things go very, very well for him. But earthly-wise, it doesn't go so well for him. But he helps plant this church in a city called Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, Uh, And as we've been studying through this letter, what we found is it's really a foundational letter. And in the first three chapters, uh, it, it spends that amount of time talking about how these Ephesians became Christians, how when those first people came into that city, they began sharing the good news of Jesus with people who did not love Jesus. And as they heard these people opening their mouths and sharing these words in their lives with these other Ephesians, they began to say, something's different about you, what is it? And they started talking about God and the Bible and Jesus. And they're like, I don't like that. Uh, and they're like, well, why don't you just come and let's just talk and let's, let's maybe read through part of the Bible together and let's explore this. And they said, okay. And then one day they were like, I think I love Jesus. Uh, and they're like, praise God. Uh, so they became Christians. They repented of their old way of living and they followed after Jesus, And so that first half of that letter, Paul just writes to these Christians and he reminds them how they first became Christians, how they heard the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation, believed upon Jesus, and then how they were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So we have Paul kind of casting their minds back to remind them of how they first became Christians. And then he pulls back the curtain as well in those first couple of chapters to reveal that the miraculous work of God that happened in their hearts as they became Christians was just as miraculous as what had happened in his own life. That all salvation is a miraculous work of God. So, if you want to participate in the miraculous, share the gospel and see people come to know Jesus. That's crazy miraculous. They go from being spiritually dead and hating the things of God to loving the things of God. It's wild. And so, so we talked about that in the first couple of chapters, and then. Um, as we began to explore that a little bit more, what we, what we saw as well is he reminded these Christians some of the bad news of the gospel, that we are rebels against God, spiritually dead, unwilling to do anything except reject God further, but also the good news of the gospel, that God saw us in our rebellion when we were enemies. He came after us and gave us faith to believe upon Jesus. And that's the reason why any of us came to believe upon Jesus at all in the first place that he gave us minds to comprehend the gospel, ears that could hear, uh, eyes that could see, and he gave us brand new hearts. He exchanged the hearts that we once had, the hearts of stone, with soft hearts. And as he did so, we were convicted by God that we really were sinners who only deserve his judgment because he is holy. And then we learned about his rescue plan, how he could take sinners like you and I and pardon and forgive us that it wasn't, become, it wasn't through becoming more religious or more moral, it wasn't by you trying harder, rather, it was by trusting in, by faith in Jesus, that God the Son, Jesus, really did take humanity and lay it alongside of his divinity and step into time and live the perfect life that we should have lived, a life free of rebellion and suffered and died in our place for our sin as our substitute. And you and I were given faith to believe upon that good news just as these Ephesians were. And when, when that happened, we confess with our mouths, Jesus is God, we believed in our hearts, God rose him from the dead, that he lived that perfect life, died in our place and then rose bodily from the dead. And at that moment, we were adopted into God's family by faith in Jesus alone. But as we've been also learning the last three chapters, chapters four to six, our faith is not a faith that remains alone. Right? We, we were saved by grace through faith alone. We trust in what Jesus has done alone, but it's not a faith that remains alone. So we were transferred from citizens of a kingdom of rebellion into being citizens of Jesus's new kingdom and grace. And now we're called by God to live out our new identity as Christians, to quit living in such a way that displeases God by giving ourselves old sinful patterns and ways of living. Rather, we are now to live holy lives, righteous lives as a gracious response to what God has done for us. See, before we became Christians, we believed the lie that we got to decide for ourselves what was right and what was wrong, what is good and what is evil. But now as Christians, we submit to whatever God says is good and what God says is evil. We say, you are God, I am not. If you say that is evil, okay. Right? We, don't, we don't say, no, no, but what about this? Like, no, nope, God has God spoken. So we, we submit to him, we love him, we trust him and we follow him. Now as Christians, that's what we want to do. We want to live our lives in a way that honors God. Our faith isn't to be one that's just a mental assertion of facts, even though there are historical facts that are true, but it's not just a mental assertion of facts. Rather, this salvation experience is to change everything about us. And I mention this all the time, but in the same way that love changes everything about you, right, I love my, my wife. When I, when I fell in love with her, everything that I did changed Everything. Everything. I I thought about what pleased her and how to encourage her. What I ate changed. And where I went changed. I even now spend holidays with family that is not my family. And here you are. And I love you. And it's, You, we spend family now, we're now family people that are not your family. It's strange, isn't it? If you really think about it, you sit there at at the holiday table, maybe after you guys get married and you're sitting around the holiday table with one another and you're like, oh, you're now my family forever. (laughs) Here we are, right? It's this, it's a weird thing. Love changes everything about you and it's strange and it's beautiful, In a much greater way, when we become Christians, everything about us changes because now we have a new family. We have God as now as our father. We wanna live lives that honor God. Where we go changes. How we live changes. The things that we do change all because we have a desire now to please him, not because we have to, but because we love him and we want to. And so Paul writes this letter to these Christians in Ephesus in those first three chapters. It's all about their salvation, how they're saved by God. And and then the next three is all about how they ought to now live as Christians in this new identity. Thus, since chapter four, we've seen some of these new ways of living that we're called to walk out as Christians. And what we've seen is that the gospel impacts every single area of our lives. Beginning last week in chapter five, we saw what gospel-centered marriages ought to look like, how marriage is uniquely designed by God to put on display the relationship between Jesus and the church, his bride, and how we as Christians are called to present this picture accurately for the world around us, that they might see something beautiful about the character and the nature of God displayed in and through your marriage that is not a forgery, right, We don't wanna offer the world a forgery. God is like this. If he's not like that, we wanna offer to the world a real picture of what God really is like in and through our marriages so that our neighbors and our friends, our colleagues and our children might see glimpses of the gospel that we proclaim and how it impacts our love for one another and our love for God. And so for this week, we're gonna zero in on one of the most important relationships as well that we have in our lives other than our spouse. And it's the one between parents and children and how our faith ought to impact that relationship as well. And so if you were a kid, there is about half of the sermon in here today that is for you. Isn't that awesome? Usually half of our sermon isn't just zeroed in at you, but then I promise you the other half of the sermon is gonna be for your parents, okay? All right, all right, all right. So turn to me, Ephesians chapter six, one to four, that's where we're gonna be diving in today in a sermon entitled United to Christ in the Home. So let's pray one more time and then we're gonna dive in. So, Father, as we have seen so far in and through this letter, we once were dead in our sins, walking contrary to your word as enemies of you, doing nothing to earn your kindness and grace. And rather, we lived as children of wrath in opposition to you. But by your grace, you intervened. You saved us. You gave us new life, forgiving us and adopting us into your family. So I pray as we walk through this text and look at some of the closest relationships that we have on earth between parents and kids, that you would Help us see how we are to live out our new identity as Christians in these difficult spaces. Help me as I preach. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit and speak through me as I open up and explain your word that we might know how we ought to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which we've been called. That no longer would we... Would we walk as we used to, but rather that we had put off that old way of living, be renewed in the spirit of our minds and put on our new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And we ask that in Jesus' name, amen. All right, amen. Now, as we've seen since chapter four, right? Paul's in a section of the letter where we there are these constant calls to put off this behavior, this thought, this action and to put on these other ones. So we talked about marriage last week and the necessity to live out our faith in a way that is different through our marriage. And today we're gonna see all these verses about parents and kids, how we are to demonstrate that we have been united to Christ. And, And thinking about last week and this week, it's important to note that it's in our everyday relationships where our faith is actually really rubber hits the road, real, true, put on display. Right, full out, that's where you'll see If you have faith in God and in Jesus, this will be put on display and proven. It's in these home relationships where what we say we believe and then how we live are tested so that the genuineness of our faith or the counterfeitness of our faith will be seen most clearly. It's easy, as we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, for someone to think well of you uh, who hardly knows you, right? If I just met you on the street, I'm congenial. You're like, ah, he's a nice guy. You don't know me. Uh, you don't know me. And that's the, that's the point. Is in, in things like this, maybe on a Sunday, surface level, the, the, maybe the deepest thing I might be able to say if I don't really know you that well is, hey, you have great pants, or I like that haircut. That's about it. But, but your mom and dad, the ability that they have and your brothers and sisters just speaking into your life and to know you is way deeper See, it's different when, when someone, they don't know you that well, they, they don't know how you sin, and they're someone who you haven't sinned against. It's easy for them to think well of you. But the people who know you best, right? The people who you've sinned against, the people who know your heart, they know how you're prideful and stubborn. They, they know when you're humble and repentant. And, and, and the question that we're gonna ask is do you, do you demonstrate a heart that has been actually transformed by Jesus and is striving to live as a Christian or do you just talk big around church folk? Right, that's an easy thing to do. It's an easy thing to talk big around church folk. It's a different thing to live your life for Christ at home. It's in those closest relationships, the sharing of everyday ordinary life where, where we are better known than any other, any other sphere of life, right? Right? I mean, parents, after your spouse, your kids know you like nobody else knows you. Not even your closest friends know you like your kids know you. Your kids, in a moment, know what they can do that will make you angry and what will frustrate you. If we brought them up here and said, what angers daddy? They would just tell everybody, and you'd be very embarrassed, uh, Because they know everything about you. They have a front row seat to see everything in your life. They know your political leanings. They know your favorite teams. They know everything about you. They also have a front row seat to see a lot of the things with your faith, to see if your faith is genuine. They see if you sacrifice for the sake of others financially. They see what you do with your time when it costs you. They have an inside look unlike anyone else to know how you talk to your spouse. They know all the harsh words and the bickering or the gentleness and repentance, love and respect that mark your relationship. They also know how you read your Bible. They know if your faith really does impact your everyday life, and they know how it doesn't. They see everything. There's no hiding things from children. They better than anyone else know if your faith is much more like talkative from Pilgrim's Progress or not. They know if you talk big game about religious stuff out and abroad, but at home, you're a mean drunk who's rude and unkind, they know that. Likewise, kids, your parents see your life and know you in a way also that no one else will ever know you. They know everything about you. They've watched you grow up. They have a front row seat to hear what you say with your mouth. They see how you treat your siblings. And just as you see your parents' faith lived out, they also see if the faith that you proclaim with your lips is being lived out or not in your words and in your actions. They better than anyone else know if you really do have genuine repentance and faith in your life, because they see your heart more than anyone else and how it's revealed in your words and your actions. And so while most sermons aren't directly aimed at parents and children, in today's text, this is exactly what we see, so this is exactly where we're headed. Uh, That's one of the things, when you just preach through the Bible, you're like, well, here we are, welcome. Uh, And it's it's a fun thing, uncomfortable thing at times, but wonderful. And so if you are a kid or a teenager in the room, then you also need to pay close attention today, especially the first three verses. Because if you claim to love Jesus, if you've repented of your sin and you're trying to live out your faith as a Christian, Paul has a couple of words for you on how you ought to live out your faith in one of the toughest relationships that you have, the one with your parents. And parents, we will also see how God commands us to live with our children. So kids and teenagers, you are up first. You ready? The babies are ready. Those are the only, those are the only people ready. All right. All right, so here we go. Uh, verses one to three. Was that you that said yes? Who said? Somebody over here. Hey, hey! is ready. All right. Let's read verses one to three. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first command commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, That seems pretty straightforward, right? But let's take time to make sure we understand what it says because kids, there is a lot riding on you obeying this verse uh, and, and on you doing this right. So firstly, children, obey your parents. Now, this one word, obey, it has two different meanings at the same time. One word, two meanings at the same time. The first one is listen. So you should listen to them attentively listen to them, and then secondly, what you probably most naturally would understand from this word, it means that you should be obedient to them, that you should obey them. So listen and obey, one word at the same time. This word obey, listen and obey. Be obedient to what they're telling you to do. So let me give you an example. It's like when your mom and dad, they're maybe in the other room and they call out for you and they say, hey, come here. Uh, And you first have to hear them, then you have to obey them, right? If you don't hear them, you cannot obey them, right? So first you listen to them, then you obey them. So in the same way, when your parents tell you to do something, your responsibility, the thing that God is telling you to do is first to listen to what they're telling you. Actually, when they're talking to you, listen to them. Teenagers, I know this is a bit harder. Actively listen and obey what it is that they are calling you to do which means that you should not pretend that you do not hear them and go on doing whatever it is that you want to do. No, that is not how God calls you to respond. God is commanding you to listen and then to obey. Listen and obey. Now, sometimes you can be so into whatever it is that you're doing that you generally don't hear your parents, right? Like you're playing Lego, you're doing something, you're reading a book. I don't know, I don't know what you're doing. You're doing something You genuinely do not hear them. That's normal. But let me ask you a question. When you do hear your parents, what does your heart do? When you actually hear them, what does your heart do? Does it say, does it say, I wanna do whatever I wanna do and I don't care what my parents say? Or does it say, I will go see what my parents want and I will listen and obey them, even when I can't understand why they want me to do this thing right now? Because in that moment, you have a decision to make and your heart will go one of two directions. One of them is sinful. One of them is honoring God and doing what he's calling you to do. And I know that you know which of those two it is. See, naturally, when our parents ask us to do something, we have hearts that naturally wanna go our own way, right? We don't want to listen to our parents, whatever it is that they want us to do. We don't wanna do it because it's in opposition to whatever the thing is that we want to do. So in that moment, kids, when you hear your parents call out to you and you feel this pull towards disobedience, that is a very good moment to stop, to ask God for forgiveness for that because your heart wants to sin, it wants to disobey. So stop say, God, forgive me for that. Help me to obey my mom and dad. Walk out of your room, go to your parents, listen to them and obey them. So stop what you're doing ask for God's forgiveness, ask him for his help to help you obey, stand up, walk into the other room and say, hey, I'm here, what's up? And and the reason for doing this, the reason for obeying is because God has given you to your parents at this stage of life for them to rule over you. They are responsible for you, they are under your house and God has placed them as an authority figure over you. So if they are asking you to do something your job, God is saying, is to listen and obey. And I might add, do, not, or do those things without grumbling. Grumbling. Parents know what grumbling is, do we not? Yes, we do. Do without grumbling. Don't do it with grumbling. Because in grumbling against your parents and rebelling against them, what you're actually doing is that you are rebelling and grumbling against God who put them over you. And that's why it's so dangerous. Because in that moment, your heart is rebelling against your mom and dad. And you think, I'm just rebelling against my mom and dad. But on a spiritual level, what you're doing is you're rebelling against God who put them in charge over you in this season of life. And so you're doing much more than just not listening to your mom and dad. You're actively rebelling against God. And especially if you are a Christian who wants to please God, then kids, it's a really practical way of pleasing God to do what he says, to live out your faith by obeying your parents, listen and obey them. That's what puts your faith on display that you really do love and trust and believe in God. And if that sounds impossible to you to do, then you are right. It is impossible to do on your own strength. You don't have the ability to listen and obey your parents. Your natural inclination will be to rebel against them. And that's why you need God's help for you to help you obey your mom and dad. So pray and ask him to help you obey. And maybe even ask your parents to pray this for you, that you would have an obedient heart that loves to listen. And when you sin in this way, and you will, Ask God for forgiveness, for forgiveness from your parents, and then ask him to continue to grow you in your faith so that you can please him, and he will help you. Now, kids and teenagers, I need your help for a second. I'm gonna ask you a question, and I want you to shout out an answer for me. You ready? It's gonna be a yes or no answer. So I want you to scream it, scream it out as loud as you can. You ready? You ready? Thank you, thank you, like that, but louder. You ready? All right, I'm a yes or no answer. Do your parents sin? Not one no, not one no. You know why? It's because they know you. It's because they know you. They do, your parents, they sin. Now, because of that, there might come a time when obeying Jesus means that you cannot obey your mom and dad. So we're always called to obey Jesus before obeying our parents. So if your parents are asking you to sin in some way, to lie, to cover something up, do you have to obey them when they tell you to lie and sin against God? No, No, you don't. Now, now, cleaning up your room, putting away Lego, putting your phone down for the evening, shoveling snow, Those are not sins. Uh, Those are not sins that your parents are trying to get you to do. So your normal normal disposition towards your mom and dad ought to be one where you listen to them and you do what it is they are asking you to do. You wanna strive to be a blessing to your mom and dad. Help them out. Because let me tell you a secret. Being a parent is a lot of work. It is incredibly hard work. After you go to bed, we still clean stuff and we fold stuff, and then we clean more stuff. It's crazy, and then we go to bed, and then you wake up early, and then it starts all over again, another day. So it's hard work, and at this stage of life, God has you living at home with your mom and dad to be a blessing to them. So strive to be a blessing. Don't grumble. Don't be mean. Don't pretend you don't hear them. Don't hit your sibling because you're bored for no reason. And remember that obeying your parents is the right thing to do because Jesus has told you to do it. So obeying your parents is a way that you practically live out your faith and please God. So strive to listen and obey them. Live out the faith that you proclaim to have um, and uh let that work its way out into your practical life. Now, not only that, but Paul mentions in verse two that there's two promises for you kids. You ready? You have two promises from, from God for you as kids as you honor your parents. Are you ready for them? Beautiful. All right, so it says, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, both of these promises come from the Old Testament and they stem from the same idea. So first we read this verse. Uh, what immediately comes to my mind, what should come to your mind, kids, especially if you've been around the trails for a while, is the book of Exodus and the 10 commandments. For we remember as Israel gathered, remember they were gathered around the foothills of Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai was bending and trembling underneath the fire and the weight of God's glory. And Israel, all the Israelites, they're at the foothills of the mountain and they're all trembling in their sandals, just afraid. And God speaks to them and they hear all those 10 commandments from the very mouth of God. And the fourth one is the one that Paul mentions here. So we see in, uh, in Exodus twenty twelve, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. And this command is spoken of again in Deuteronomy 5, 16. And there we read, honor your father and mother as the Lord your God has commanded you that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And what we see throughout the Old Testament is that as God's people are faithful in keeping the commands and statutes of God given to Israel, then they will dwell securely and safely in the land that God has promised them. And things will go really well for them if they are faithful. However, if we were to flip open and read Deuteronomy chapter 28 to 30, what we would see is that there are also judgments for Israel when they are faithless to the commands and statutes of God. In fact, if they are faithless, if they don't submit themselves to God's word and and if they instead run after a whole bunch of other false gods, then they will come underneath the discipline of God. He will raise up foreign armies, who will come in and destroy them and lead them out into slavery. And this is exactly what we see happen in the pages of the Old Testament. When Israel is faithful to the word of God and his commands, things go really well for them and they dwell securely in the land. But as they are faithless, God brings judgment on them. Now, It's not always immediately for God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But eventually this is exactly what happens. As Israel is divided, the Northern kingdom is attacked and destroyed by Assyria, the Southern kingdom by Babylon. And it isn't until God raises up Cyrus, the Persian, this pagan man who does not love God, he comes in and destroys Babylon. And then Israel is sent back to rebuild Israel with Nehemiah and Ezra. And that's how all that unfolds. And so what Paul is doing here at this stage of the letter uh, is he's wanting to point out, there we go. He's wanting to point out uh, for the encouragement of the children of the church in Ephesus, those who have become Christians and those who haven't, who are still learning about the things of God. He wants them to know how they ought to obey and honor their parents so that things would go well for them and that they would live long on the earth. Thus, as they become familiar with all the stories in the Old Testament, as they see what happens exactly when people disobey God and all the judgment that they come under, our kids ought to also recognize that it's important to obey God's commands and that what is before them is the choice for life or death, life or death, a life that, that follows the commands of God or a life that is spent in opposition to God and his commands. This is what Paul's doing. He's encouraging the children of Ephesus to live out their faith in this extremely practical way by honoring their father and their mother. And he encourages them that as they do so, they are choosing the path of life. And as they do, what is generally true for them as they honor and obey their parents is that things will go well with them and they will live long on the earth. And so in reality, Paul's explaining that this command of God, when it is obeyed by the children of Ephesus and by all Christian children, including you, the children of the trails and the youth of the trails, is that there are these immediate earthly blessings for honoring God by obeying and honoring your parents. So there's earthly blessings in your life as you honor and obey your parents Your parents are there to help protect you and love you. And as you listen to them, things will go better for you than if you try to just do things on your own. I know you don't understand that right now, but trust me, you will. Things will go much better for you if you listen to your parents who love you and are trying to help you. Now, there are also spiritual blessings as you're faithfully living out your faith in these relationships, and there are future rewards in the coming kingdom as you faithfully obey and honor your parents. So there's all three. There's immediate earthly blessings, there are spiritual blessings for you, and there are future rewards for you. Now, I also wanna admit, though, that this phrase is also a bit confusing if we stop and think about it, right? Some of you notice maybe some tension immediately already in this verse. Like, is Paul saying that if if you honor your parents and obey them, that you are guaranteed to live a really long life and, and that things are guaranteed to go well with you? If you honor your parents and obey them, are you guaranteed to live a long life and that things are guaranteed to go well with you? Right, so, so all people that are extremely old Now, if you're a kid, old is like 60. You're my age, old is 105. 105, are they old? Like 105, are they the people who faithfully honor their parents? Why those who died at younger ages are those who didn't honor their parents? And then what stories do we know about people who have died from things like childhood cancer or accidents? Did they honor their parents or not? Was God punishing them for not obeying their parents and that's why they had a short life? What do we do with this? Now, this could be a much longer conversation, and it's one that we are currently having uh, on our Basecamp podcast series as we're discussing the topic of suffering in the life of a Christian. So if you wanna listen along to that so far, I think we have like two hours of audio or so. I would encourage you to, and we're doing more of those episodes this week. But in short, uh, I do wanna let you know this as a shorthand answer, that, that this What we see as we read through the Bible is that there are a lot of general promises that outline the way that things normatively go for the individual who is faithful to God's commands. What we see is that we read through the Bible is there are lots of general promises that outline the way that things normatively go for the individual who is faithful to obey God's commands. So for example, think about the book of Proverbs. By right, the book of Proverbs is chock full of these. We see advice from a father to a son all about the way that things typically go for those who walk in the ways of wisdom as opposed to the way of folly. So as the son in Proverbs listens to his father's advice and not the other young men of his age, he will be saved from death and destruction. So in Proverbs, we see a picture of the way of wisdom, general principles for how things typically happen. But this is where we need to be careful Can you find a thing that says, but we need to be careful? But we need to be careful because these verses do not guarantee from God that our lives will be long and full, free from catastrophe and heartbreak if we honor our parents. Let me say that again. We need to be careful because these verses do not guarantee from God that our lives will be long and full, free from catastrophe and heartbreak, if we honor our parents. This is not a promise to be claimed, named and spoken over your life. Friends, we are not promised another breath. We are not promised our lives would be free from cancer. We are not promised they would be free from sickness or hardship. As faithful Christians, we cannot say those things because of all the things that we see in the rest of God's word. But what God is saying through the pen of Paul to the Ephesians and by extension to us, is that godly children live a blessed life as they submit to their parents, as they submit to their parents in their hearts. So normatively, your quality of life will be better and your quantity of life will be better. Your quantity and your quality will be better. So if we want as parents for our children to have rich, full, joyous, happy, peaceful, rewarding lives, then we as parents, as we see in verse 4 we'll give ourselves to instructing our children in the Lord and disciplining them into obedience. Because none of them come out of the womb, listening, obedient, and honoring us in their hearts. Right? And everyone who's had a kid says, yes. Nobody comes out doing all of those things. This is something that has to be cultivated in all of our hearts as we grow. And if we want our children to live a long, full life, one that is not headed towards destruction and death and judgment because of their sin, transgression, and lack of self-control, we need to discipline them and instruct them. So verses two to three are speaking about the normative way that we can expect for life to go as parents instruct and disciple and discipline their kids as their children listen, obey, and honor their parents. This is not an ironclad promise to be claimed but rather normatively, this is what happens as we instruct and disciple and discipline our children in the Lord. So don't be confused thinking this is some kind of magic formula for how this always works. If I do this, God will do this. God is not a divine vending machine where you put in the right coins and pop out whatever it is that you want. This is not a transactional, but normatively, this is how things work. And you might wonder, well, how do we know that? How do we know that it isn't one of these iron-clad promises from God given to us. How do we know this isn't a promise to be expected by all of us and claimed for our lives? Well, firstly, because we can look to Jesus and see this isn't how his life went down. Right? Is that how Jesus's life went down? Nope. Who listened and obeyed their mom and dad better than Jesus? Not you? Not, not you? Not me, nobody, thank you, Mace, nobody, nobody. He was perfect in obedience. He always honored his father and mother. And yet things did not go well for him and he did not experience a long life. Rather, his life was incredibly difficult His life was filled with suffering. In fact, if we look at Isaiah, we see that he fulfilled perfectly the suffering servant motif. His life was filled with suffering. And then at the end of it, he's abandoned by all of his disciples as he's illegally arrested, tried in the middle of the night, flogged and crucified naked as a spectacle to be mocked at. And he was the best son ever. He deserved for all things to go well for him and he deserved to have a long life. But for our sake he laid down his life, taking upon himself the judgment that we deserve to pay for our rebellion and faithlessness as sons and daughters. So we can't look at this verse as a blanket statement and say, if we do this, God must do this, and this is how it always works. And yet it isn't just with Jesus that we see this happen. In fact, all the way throughout the Bible, we see men and women who had incredibly difficult lives, immense suffering, and horrible deaths. And it's not because they were faithless, but rather because they were faithful. Faithful. Not only that, we know throughout church history the heartbreaking sorrow sorrow that many of them walked through with loss of children, especially before they reached adulthood. My favorite theologian, John Owen, he had 11 children. Nine of them did not make it to adulthood. Is that because they did not listen and obey and honor their parents? No. It's because they live in a broken world where there's sickness and sin and broken bodies This is the world that we live in. So this is not an ironclad promise and we know that this is true. See, when we look at the word promise here, we might be tempted to think this is a guarantee that this must happen, but we need to weigh our thoughts and expectations in light of all of scripture. Let's not make up our entire doctrine of suffering or any other topic for that matter based on one verse out of context. Rather, let us test what we hear lest we believe in vain. so normatively, yes, things will go exceedingly well for you as you honor God, putting your faith on display and trusting God as you're faithful to listen and obey your parents, and as you have a disposition in your heart to honor them. And so this is God's command for you. Children, so I wonder, are you doing this? Are you striving to live your life in a way where you are listening and obeying your parents, and you have a disposition in your heart where you're honoring your parents? where you're not grumbling against them and rebelling against them, but do you love them? Do you honor them? And I would, I would ask you, pray, ask God to search your heart. And if there are things that you're doing that you need to repent from, to ask your mom and dad for forgiveness from, then do so. For by doing so, you're demonstrating your faith that you are declared innocent before God, not by your perfect obedience, but because Jesus was perfect for you. For by doing so, you're obeying God's commands for you and putting on your display of love of Jesus as you do. So those are the first three verses. Now, for the rest of our time, we're gonna be focusing on verse four. So kids, now it's your parents' turn. You ready? No one's ready. All right, now, for the rest of our time, so we're gonna focus on verse four. And while the verse here specifically says fathers, specifically says fathers, this is a word that, that mostly does refer to fathers in the Bible, but at least in one other place in the New Testament, in Hebrews eleven twenty three, we see it used to refer to Moses' parents, his mother and his father. So we're gonna embrace the idea that both parents are involved in the conversation here, uh, not just the dads, because as you'll see, there's things that moms and dads can do this, as we as parents are called to live out our faith in regards to how we treat our children. So let's look at verse four, and we see what parents are to put off and put on in regards to our relationship with them. So it says, fathers and mothers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction or the truth of the Lord. Now, a couple of weeks ago, in our study of Ephesians chapter four, verses 26 to 27, we talked about how anger is an emotion that is not condemned in the Bible, but in our anger, we ought to be slow to anger and then angry, and then quick to put it off. You remember that? Slow to anger, be angry, but don't sin in your anger, and then quickly put it off. So anger itself is not a sin, but it is like playing with fire. It's very dangerous. So that was the last time we saw anger. But here is anger again, mentioned in the command of parents to not provoke their children to anger, which is kind of clear. Our job as parents is not to intentionally make our children angry. Uh, We are not to provoke or to rouse them to wrath or to exasperate them, which means that we can interact with our kids in such a way that exasperates and angers them, right? If we see, do not do this, then, well, we can do this. And and I don't know if you uh, have been on social media or skate parks or anywhere else that teenagers hang out, including online gaming, but there is a lot of angry kids in the world. Lots of them running around angry with their parents, angry with culture, angry at everything. And as parents, what we are called to do is not to add to that. As parents, we are not to provoke, to rouse our children to wrath, to exasperate them, to lead them to anger in our relationship to them. I was reminded of this, of all the ways that we can do this in a sermon I was listening to by John MacArthur. And he gave a lot of examples that I think are helpful to understand how we actually do this as parents. And it's pretty convicting. I have not just done one of these, I have done multiples of them. And so if you're anything like me, as you're listening through, there might be a lot of things afterwards that you need to have some conversations about, which we'll talk about. But he explained that we can provoke our children to anger by doing a couple of things. Firstly, we can require too much of our kids. We can set impossible standards for them to match. And then we can come down incredibly hard on them when our children cannot meet them. Next, we can make our children angry when we overprotect them, when we fence them in, when we bubble wrap them and everything around them, when we never let them have any experiences so that they may never get hurt in any possible way because they are our baby, right? And so we confine them, we distrust them, we never allow them any freedom. And by doing so, we irritate them and exasperate them by not giving them any freedom and by not trusting them. Thirdly, parents can also anger our kids as we play the comparison game amongst them. Like, why don't you act like your sister? That one, right? So we can exasperate them with that by comparing between them. We can also anger them as we give them unrealistic expectations, either unrealistic for their age or their temperament, and in this, we can crush them with our, under our own pride or ambition because we want people to know our children as successful. We want them to know that our, children is, our child is a good athlete or knows how to handle themselves in the trades or they're an excellent musician or they are a great student. And so we set impossibly high standards that they can't attain. And we make our kids feel like they never measure up and can never please us enough as we do so. We also provoke them to anger when we are withholding from our kids and cause them to be angry by discouragement and negative reinforcement. We can give them no thanks, no rewards, no approval, no honor, which destroys all of their motivation and makes them feel like they have to earn your love, which is a terrible way to anger your kids and is the opposite of how we as parents ought to demonstrate the love of God through our parenting. But we can also make them angry by our own selfishness by failing to sacrifice for them. And our children can become bitter when they feel that they are much more like a bother or like an intrusion into our lives. We can also make them angry through our impatience by failing to allow for them to behave and act like kids. This is especially true if you have younger children like I do, right? We want them to grow up quickly and to quit annoying us as small kids. So, so either in their behavior or mistakes, when they act like children, then we become impatient with them and then they are provoked to anger, right? And this includes times when they spill things or break things or lose things. And your response is, you lost it again? That wasn't me. I, I, uh, I heard that on a, on a podcast this week. This mom was talking about that. She's like, my kid lost his soccer or his football glove again this week. Ah. Uh, but, but we can do that, right? We start yelling at them for losing things, dropping things, spilling things, breaking things. They're kids, and we get angry at them for not acting like a thirty-five-year-old male. What's wrong with us? We are messed up, man. Not only that, but we can we can anger our kids by neglect, and there's a lot of that. And neglect turns to bitterness and anger. And then we can also we can also. Anger them by verbal abuse. We can crush our children with sarcasm or with ridicule or swearing and name-calling. Needless to say, there are a lot of ways that we can provoke a child to anger. And in that list, there are no doubt reminders of how your parents also treated you. Aren't there? Things that you're walking through, things that marked your life. But as Christian parents trying to live out our faith at home, we are commanded by God not to live in these ways. No, we are to put them off. Which, by the way, we can't do on our own. But thankfully, the God who's given us this command has also given us the ability to do what he has called us to do. As he gives us the spirit to empower us. So as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, we need to continually be filled with the spirit to help us obey God's word. And so that in these family relationships, what we do is we put our faith on display in how we instruct and discipline our children in the Lord, not provoking them to anger. Again, Jonathan MacArthur he explained, as we raise up our children, we will get the product and fruit of our labors in their lives. So negatively, if a child lives and grows up with criticism, they will condemn. If a child lives and is raised with hostility, he will learn to fight. If a child lives with criticism, she will learn to be very shy. If a child lives with shame, they will learn to feel guilty. Conversely, if a child lives with parents who patiently interact with her, she will learn to be patient. If a child lives uh, with encouragement, he will learn to have confidence. If that child lives with praise, she will learn to appreciate. If a child lives with fairness, he will learn justice. If a child lives with security, she will learn trust. And if a child lives with approval, he learns to like himself. And if a child lives with security, she learns to trust. If a child lives with approval, he learns to like himself. Oh, sorry, I already said that one. And if you live with acceptance and friendship, you learn to love. So, so this command of God given us by, by God through the, Paul, the, the pen of Paul is, do not provoke your children to anger, thereby leading them to sin in their hearts and creating an environment where it's incredibly difficult for them to want to obey us and honor us, but it's really hard, right? We wanna create a good environment where they can joyfully submit to us, listen, obey, and honor us in their hearts. Now, let me be clear. Children, you are still responsible for obeying your parents even when they're sinning against you. Got me? You don't get to say, well, you were sinning against me, so I sinned against you. No, you are not given the the all clear card, the play on card, just because your parents are sinning against you. you. You are responsible for obeying your parents even when we sin against you and provoke you to anger. That command of Paul is still for you. Be angry and do not sin. That is a command that's for you. You don't get a free pass to dishonor your parents and rebel against them when they sin against you but it's our command as parents to put off this old behavior that is dominant in the culture around us and even in our own upbringing. We are now Christians, and so we, are all, we ought to interact with our kids where we put our faith on display. So we're called to put off any provoking to anger and rather put on, as we see, love and good deeds. Put off anger, as we see in Hebrews, we're to provoke one another to love and to good deeds. And I think that's important. There's two ways that you can provoke your children. You can provoke them to sin, or as we see in Hebrews, provoke or stir or stoke their affections for love and to good works. So stoke the fires of the affections in their hearts for the things of the Lord as you disciple or instruct and discipline or correct your kids. And I don't know about you, but the longer that I've been a dad and the more that I see the impact that I have on my kids, I, I've seen how just with, with one word, or a glance, or sarcasm, or a small joke. What I can do is I can either embolden and encourage them or just knock them flat. You know what I mean? Just with with one word, one glance, one look, you can embolden them or knock them straight flat. It's a wild responsibility that we have as parents that we have the ability to do that, to strengthen them with our words, or to make them sick with harsh words. And so we're reading the Bible and we come across verses like this. We need to pause and do an honest assessment of our lives. How are we doing at this? Are we, even unknowingly, are we provoking our children to anger? And so as I was studying this week, I, I wanna share a question that I pause and ask myself repeatedly. And it's this question. I'd love for you to ask it of yourself. It's, am I living in such a way with my words, actions, and attitudes that provokes my children to anger? i living in a way, my words, actions, or attitudes that provoke my children to anger. See, when we read God's word, we're not just to read the scriptures, but rather we are to allow them to do their work in our lives to correct us. We need God's word to do the work of probing the depths of our hearts and examining our lives as a result because we want to honor God, especially how we relate with these tiny little gifts that God has given to us to live in our homes And so I'd love for you to take some time this week and think through that question. Ask God to convict you over some of the ways that you've been provoking your children to anger so that you can put off this behavior, stop acting in those ways, and start provoking and stoking your children to love and to good deeds in the Lord. But as you do, I would also caution you because your heart is deceptive. Your heart is deceptive. Mine is, yours is, all of our hearts. My heart will lie to me and tell me that I'm doing an awesome job no, you're awesome. You're not the problem. They're the problem. No, that's not true. I know that's, I know that's wrong. And so in answering questions like this, you will also need help to accurately assess yourself at how you're doing in this. So how do you do that? Well, the first person I would suggest sitting down and getting your honest feedback with is the person who sees you around your kids the best and who knows you better than anyone else in the world spouse. They are a great mirror for you. Now, if you are a widow, you're not married, or you something else in your life, if you have a friend around that's a good, trusted friend, they would be a great person to talk with as well for you to open up about these things and and ask them, would you look into my life and see maybe if there's ways that I'm not doing this well or ways that I'm provoking my children to anger, and then let them be able to speak into your life. So after you've had maybe some time to think about it, to pray and process through it, I would find some time where you can sit down with your spouse and ask them their thoughts about how you are doing at this. Which areas do they see you provoking your children to anger? Now, let me also just say that if this is something you've never done before with your spouse and talking about these sorts of things or parenting issues or things like this, it'll be incredibly humbling, but it is a very necessary one if you wanna honor God and live as a Christian man or woman with your children. Now, we need input into how we are doing and and our spouses are are great gifts, our friends are great gifts into that, that we might grow in godliness because nobody knows us like our spouses know us. Nobody knows us like them. And brothers, I, I wanna ask you to lead on this conversation. Brothers, I don't want you to sit around and wait for your wife to engage in this conversation with you. No, I want you to be brave. I want you to put your big boy pants on. I want you to sit down with your wife and I want you to ask her to help you be a better dad. And then sisters, same thing. You're gonna ask the exact same question. How do I be a better mom? How am I provoking my kids? Knowing that this man and this woman are on your team. They are with you in this. They're God's great gifts for you. Now on the way home, here's the homework that I wanna give you. Ready? Talk about, talk about when you're gonna have the conversation. Don't have the conversation yet. They'll drive home and be like, well, well, what are your thoughts? Well, let's talk about it right now. Don't do that. You need time to think, think, pray, meditate, ask the Lord, search your heart, think about maybe your interactions, even the rest of today, maybe tomorrow with your kids. Think through that a little bit. And then later on in the week, husbands, your job, initiate the conversation. Single ladies, find another single lady. If you're a mom and you're dealing with kids at home, find another single lady or, or another married woman or whatever, talk about these things together. And because we need input into how we're doing and uh, we need people on our team. So don't talk about on the way home, give a couple of hours, a few days for someone to assess their heart, to repent of things and then chat because it'll go much better for you. And so brothers, when you do sit down for this discussion, here's what I want you to do. You ready? You should write this down. Firstly, take her hand and pray. Take her hand and pray ask God to soften your hearts so that you can both be receptive to things that are going to be shared. Now, I say this because just like your children, when you call them and their natural reaction is to rebel against you, and like, oh, I didn't hear you, your natural reaction is going to either shut down and wanna end the conversation immediately because you can't handle it emotionally, or you're gonna make excuses for your behavior. And both of those responses are not gonna allow you to grow in godliness from having your spouse actually be honest with you. Now, let me also say, this will not be a fun conversation, but it is a necessary one if you actually wanna grow in your relationship with God, with your spouse, and with those kids that God has entrusted to you. So pray together, read this verse, and then brothers, you go first and ask your wife, are there specific ways that you've noticed that I exasperate our children? Then brothers, your job is hard next. Are you ready? You say nothing. You just let her speak. And as she does, fight against the urge to take offense. Don't defend yourself. Just listen and you take notes, all right? Listen and you take notes. Now, after she is done sharing, maybe ask some clarifying questions for further reflection and prayer, and then pray together and, and talk about these things. Men, ask God to help you live out your identity as a Christian man in the relationship with your kids and for strength to do so, knowing that you won't be perfect, but pray that you'd always be quick to repent and ask forgiveness when you fail. And then sisters, it's your job now then to pray over your husband. Lay your hands on him and pray over him. He needs your gracious and loving support and encouragement. He needs your words to be good fruit in his life. He needs you to strengthen him. And you have this role to strengthen him in ways that nobody else on this planet does. So sisters, use that time to embolden his faith, to remind him that you are on his team and that you love him. And when that prayer is over, sisters, it's your turn to go through the same process. Ask if there are specific ways that he has noticed that you exasperate your kids. Let him speak, fight against the urge to take offense, Ask clarifying questions, not accusingly, and take notes so that you can pray over those things. And then brothers, your job now is to lay your hands on your wife and pray over her, that God would embolden her faith to remind her how precious she is to you and to thank God for a wonderful gift of a godly wife. Friends, and here's where the rubber will meet the road. As you leave this conversation, ask your spouse to hold you accountable to living out the things that you've discussed. And when they do, when they when they Provoke your children to anger. Be sure to repent, ask forgiveness, give hugs, pray together, and then move on. Because it will happen. You're still a Gentile who is now a Christian. You're walking around this earth and things are gonna frustrate you. You're gonna try to provoke your children to anger. But a quick repentance, ask forgiveness, give hugs, pray together, and move on. That is the greatest godly remedy for you. Now, after that discussion, maybe that same day or a few days later, when you have repented to the Lord for those patterns of behaviors that are sinful, I'd also suggest having a conversation with your kids where you admit some of the things that you talked with your spouse about and then ask forgiveness. Let them know that you're going to be making some changes. Now, if they're old enough to understand and communicate their thoughts and feelings, I would also take time to have honest conversations with them individually. Let them know that you're trying to live out your faith as a Christian and grow in these ways and that you know you aren't perfect. And so in order to do so, you need their help. So pray with them. Read that passage and let them know that you want to ask them to help you be a better parent. And then let them know that you're not gonna make excuses for your behaviors or your harshness. You just wanna listen to them and explain this well to them, especially if they are teenagers and are able to mentally engage with you a bit more. Make sure to explain that in talking with you, they are to remain respectful and honoring in what they say and how it is said. This isn't the time to take cheap shots at you but honestly to strive for you to grow as a Christian from hearing from your children how you exasperate them. And kids, after this conversation is over, I want you to spend some time praying over your parents. Put your hands on them. Ask God to work in their lives. And in prayer, praise God that you have a faithful Christian mom and dad who will honestly ask you those kind of questions and who are striving to live out their faith in such a practical way. And then kids, as you grow up, imitate your parents' faith. As you see what they have done, you do. That, that your kids might have the same kind of relationship. Now, for those of you who have children that are all grown up and moved out of the house, let me give you a word of encouragement. Just because your kids have moved out of the house doesn't mean that this also wouldn't be a great exercise for you to do as well. To repent of all the ways that you've provoked them to anger in the past, and, and even today, how you can provoke them to anger with your words and your actions towards them. So let this be a pattern that we don't just follow with the children at home, but even when they grow up and how we interact with them, let us strive to have all of our most intimate relationships marked by the gospel. And then as we're wrapping up our time today, I just wanna remind us that we will fail to live out these household's commands. We'll fail. Children, you will not listen, obey, and honor your parents as, you're, as you ought you will want to go your own way and do whatever seems right to you. You will get frustrated with your parents. You will not wanna listen to them and submit to them as your godly authority. And parents, you will provoke your children to anger and you will not instruct and discipline them as you ought. And when parents and children fail to live out our Christian identity as we are called by God, this also is a great opportunity to remember that your right standing with God isn't based on your perfect rule keeping. Rather, It is built on the righteousness of another. For there is someone who is righteous in your place and he's the one who gives his righteousness to you so that you might be declared innocent before him. And so remember your need for Jesus's righteousness in those times when you fail to live as you ought and ask forgiveness from God and those that sin against you and the ones you sin against and ask God to help empower you to walk faithfully. All right, let's pray together. So Father, we are incredibly thankful for all that you give us in and through the gospel. I pray that you would work in our hearts in a profound and beautiful way that we might continue to grow as Christians. I pray that we might not just have a faith that is one that we talk about, but one that we live and that we live out. I pray as well that, that as we think about and walk through a lot of the relationships in our lives, God, that you would have them be marked by your grace. God, may we live in such a way that honors you. And we ask all that in Jesus' great name, amen.